This podcast is brought to you by Intel V Pro. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today I'm pleased to be joined by two journalism colleagues who are authors of a fantastic new book, Among the Braves, Shabani Matani, an international investigative correspondent for The Washington Post, and Timothy McLaughlin, a contributing writer for The Atlantic. Shabani, Timothy, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here. So I want to start with something that's in the news, uh, which is the trial of 47 Hong Kong democracy activists that's nearing completion in Hong Kong. They were charged under a, uh, with conspiracy to commit subversion under the 2020 national security law that's central to the story that you're going to tell us about. Um, you must know some of the people among these 47. Maybe you could begin by explaining the background of their case, telling us what happened in 2020, and then what the, the implications will be if the government wins this case in terms of any remaining shred of rule of law in Hong Kong. Uh, sure. So, um, yes, I mean, the 47 activists have basically covered the whole swath of Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. Everybody from uh, sort of the most prominent activists that, you know, everybody would have heard of, like Joshua Wong, um, to people like Claudia Mo, who were like long-term um, lawmakers in, in Hong Kong for many, many years, um, to people who were sort of newcomers on the political scene. Uh, and basically, they were all swept up uh, in the beginning of uh 2021 um, for essentially uh, participating in or organizing a very informal referendum uh, for the pro-democracy movement. Um, they were they were running a election primary, um, and they uh, were then um, when the national security law passed, um, they were swept up um, for subversion. Essentially, the government said that they were all conspiring to overthrow the government um, by running essentially this uh, non-official primary. One of the people who was pled not guilty is actually one of the main characters in our book, Gwyneth Ho. She was a journalist um, who then uh, essentially crossed the aisle and ran, ran for politics and ran in that primary. Timothy, if, if these people are convicted, what's the reaction of Hong Kong people likely to be? I'm curious about the mood in the streets. This is a, a place where people demonstrated by the tens of thousands uh, just a few years ago. Is any of that left? Yeah, so, I mean, the timeline, um, you know, we should, I think, know the, the newest reports today that, that this could be, the, the final arguments could be finished uh, in this case um, as soon as Monday. Uh, you know, this thing, this has gone on for, for a very long time, and it's, I think it's important for people to know that most of the people involved in this case have been denied bail. Um, so they've been in jail the entire time since uh, 2021 as, as this trial kind of drags on and on and on. Um, It'll be three to four months, probably, from Monday. Uh, you know when a verdict does come down. Um, in terms of kind of uh, what the reaction could be, um, you know, hard to say with Hong Kong. But I think it's it's, it's safe now to say that their the, the reaction will be very muted because there isn't, uh, you know, the space for for any sort of protest, any type of dissent, any type of alternative uh, voice to the government is so constricted, uh, almost non-existent at this point. So it's very hard to say, uh, it's very hard to see rather, 
uh, a situation where there would be a widespread showing of discontent uh, with these verdicts, even if people do disagree with them. Boy, that's a striking example of, of how far things have, have come. So let's pull back the, the camera a, a bit. Um, as we saw in the introductory video before we began our conversation, uh, since 1997, the end of British rule, Hong Kong and, and China operated under what was called one country, two systems. That phrase was repeated so often. Shibani, explain to our viewers how that understanding worked in practice and when it began to become fragile and begin to break. Yeah, so, you know, the really interesting thing here is that One Country, Two Systems was designed by Deng Xiaoping not just as a solution to Hong Kong or not just as like a, a, a kind of model for, for how Hong Kong could be reintegrated back to Chinese rule, but also for Taiwan. I mean, in the long term, you know, China envisioned reunifying all of its territories um, on the on the periphery or, or that that they obviously didn't control like Taiwan um, through that One Country, Two Systems formulation, where essentially they would be under Chinese rule, but get to keep their own autonomous you know, courts, um, media, uh, you know, the banking system, currency, um, all of that. And so, you know, this this was something that was essentially, you know, negotiated obviously by the British um, and the Chinese um, in the 1980s was sort of handed down to Hong Kong people um, without much input for them at all, right? Um, they didn't have a direct say in those negotiations. It was sort of sold to them as something that was, you know, good for them or, or, or something that was good for the world. You know, we were in the middle of the Cold War then, obviously, you know, um, it, it was seen as this kind of like cushion, right, between two very hostile positional systems. Um, but really, I think, you know, from our research in our book, the, the, the first real turning point there, the first real breach of, of trust was the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. I think that was when Hong Kong people really woke up to this sort of regime that that, that could be possible, right? And, and what they could be facing if they were to be handed over, when they were to be handed over rather to mainland um, China's uh, rule. So, I think that was when we saw the first kind of like awakening um, and, and, and really the foundations of what then became the modern pro-democracy movement. Um, but, you know, when we got to 1997, um, you know, it seemed for the first few years that things sort of, you know, went as normal um, and, and things didn't change overnight. But then, you know, essentially what, what we tried to do in our book is, is track that kind of like slow cut by cut by cut and this sort of two like oppositional forces where every time Beijing would try to impose something, Hong Kong would try to fight back and then it all sort of climaxes and culminates in 2019. So, uh, Timothy, let's talk about 2019. A key event um, in your book and uh, certainly in, in our memory was the extradition law that uh, uh, Hong Kong sought to impose that would have made it possible, in effect, to, to deport people to China and would have, uh, again, in effect, um, uh, applied more of China's uh, 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 laws and restrictions to Hong, Hong Kong people. Just take us back to, the, to that time and the fallout among Hong Kongers to the extradition law. Yeah, so I mean, I think it starts even a little bit before the law itself um, was imposed. The, you know, the previous year before in, in 2019, uh, before the year before 2019 when the law uh, was proposed, uh, there's a really horrific murder that took place in Taiwan. Uh, a young couple from Hong Kong uh, had traveled there for a Valentine's Day trip. Uh, the boyfriend uh, murdered his girlfriend, um, disposed of her body, flew back to Hong Kong, and 
was actually arrested originally for using her credit cards to withdraw money um, from her banking accounts. Um, he later confessed to the crime, but then they faced this dilemma where there was no extradition uh, treaty with Taiwan, so he couldn't be sent back uh, to face charges, and he also was kind of stuck in Hong Kong where he hadn't committed uh, the murder crime. His only crime was uh, you know, withdrawing funds from his girlfriend's, now deceased girlfriend's account. So, um, you know, elements of the government, I think, you know, saw that as an opportunity and they, and they seized on that very horrific crime and, and, and a mother who was grieving in public uh, to try to craft this bill, which would allow extraditions to places that didn't have treaties with Hong Kong, including, um, you know, mainland China. And so at first, uh, you know, early on, I think there was, um, a little bit of has a, a, a kind of people worried about this, but I think you really started seeing it building in the spring, um, April, May, and then into June when you had this mass protest that, that took place uh, in, in early June with you know estimates of a million people coming out to the streets. Um, so it really built for for a while, kind of quietly, and then sort of exploded. You know, it, it was kind of nothing that everything. I think uh, in a, in a way, and then we saw that carry on. You know, through through the summer, those huge protests. So, t Timothy, just to, to follow up, uh, the Hong Kong chief, chief executive at the time, uh, Carrie Lam, seemed um, to be surprised by the level of public protest, as if she hadn't realized uh, that she was lighting a firecracker. Is that is that right? Do you think she was uh, uh, taken aback by the by the by the public reaction to to, to the law? Yeah, I mean. She she is absolutely, you know, it admitted as much uh, in, 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 the, in the wake of this whole thing. Um, you know, she gave an interview where she talked about how the, go the government, while, while she was still in office, she gave an interview to talk about how the government had been monitoring sort of the protest movement um, in Hong Kong since the 2014 Umbrella Movement. Um, they saw that many people weren't coming out to protest. They saw that the pro-democracy movement was kind of in a lull. Um, so she definitely didn't think that there would be this kind of, you know, discontent. Um, and I don't think the people, the, you know, officials and government in Beijing expected it to be, uh, to be so explosive either. Um, you know, and then, uh, what started out as kind of a one issue, uh, protest really snowballed because of the government and particularly Carrie Lam's mishandling of it and the continued, uh, missing of, of off ramps, uh, de-escalation moments for de-escalation, um, that she kind of continued to plow by as she pushed on and on and on with this thing, despite the uh, you know huge portion of, of Hong Kongers coming out saying they didn't want anything to do with it. And just to to, to close out this this question, I've always wondered whether um, de-escalation in this crisis was possible. It had a catastrophic ending, and we'll talk about that in, in a minute. But if wiser decisions had been made by Carrie Lam and others, could this confrontation have been averted, postponed for some years? I'm, obviously, China's yeah. interest and control in Hong Kong is a long-going uh, issue, but, but could it have been deferred? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think early on, um, you know, you did see a huge swath of society coming out and saying, like, you know, this is not needed. You should stop this. It wasn't, uh, you know, it was it was Hong Kong people across, you know, age and socioeconomic demographics. It was diplomats. It was business leaders. It was religious leaders. Um, so there was, you know, ample warning, uh, you know, given to Carrie Lam after the protest started and the lead up um, to the first kind of massive protest. 
Um, and, you know, she continued to carry on and carry on and carry on with this. Um, and I think simply, you know, shelving it, declaring it dead very early on, um, you know, would have diffused a large uh, portion of, of the movement. Uh, and then, you know, as we moved on from there, look, you know, uh, investigating the police, you know, conduct, um, still kind of early on in the, in the protest movement, I think would have, uh, you know, made a lot of people happy uh, and, and kind of, you know, given them something to, you know, a bit of a victory there. So, yeah, absolutely. There was, you know, moment, you know, time after time, there was chances for the government to kind of, you know, to back off this and do something differently. And they missed all those opportunities. So let's talk about how you uh, tell your story in this wonderful book. You see it through the eyes of, of four activists, Reverend Chu, Tommy, Finn and Gwyneth, I think are their names. Shabani, just explain to our viewers, who are they? How did you find them? And why did you choose them to tell this larger story? Yeah, so as, as mentioned before, I think, you know, we really wanted to kind of take readers into like kind of the history of Hong Kong and its pro-democracy movement and have people understand like, okay, you saw this big, huge, uh, major news event in 2019, um, all these people on the streets, but like, let's try to kind of understand how we got here. And we really wanted to tell that through the eyes of Hong Kong people and their lived experiences to kind of draw people in, in that way and also to kind of center them in a story about their, you know, their home, really. So Reverend Chu is the oldest um, in our book. He's over 80 um, and he got involved in the pro-democracy movement uh, through 1989 and through the, the Tiananmen Square. Um, sort of uprising and then subsequent crackdown, right? Um, and he was was one of many Hong Kongers who went to Beijing to support um, the students there. You know, he was uh, very involved in the church um, and, and, a, and a pastor then. So that was his kind of entry point to, um, you know, uh, connecting his sort of spirituality and 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 the, the sort of quest or, or drive for, for democracy. He ends up being uh, essentially tapped to help um, fleeing dissidents from, from China in the wake of the Tiananmen Square crackdown um, get to Hong Kong and then to third party countries through this operation called Operation Yellowbird. Um, and that was really like one of the first mo moments the Hong Kong movement kind of came together in a way they really couldn't expect that they could have ever done and, and pulled off this really incredible thing. So he kind of starts off our, our, our narrative and our journey. Um, he's also very, you know, famous for his role in the 2014 um, Occupy Central and then, you know, became later known as the Umbrella Movement. Um, that was essentially, I think, sort of a first awakening, right, for young Hong Kong people where they really, you know, started to kind of find their voice, started to kind of um, coalesce um, and, and, and really form the networks that allowed them to kind of, you know, mobilize against the government um, in that year and then even in 2019. Um, but then obviously, you know, with 2019 being such a big focus, we wanted to have three kind of young people to kind of explain like how and why people got so emotionally invested, how people got radicalized. So Tommy um, was, a, was a young man who was a, uh, just a student. He was pretty apolitical. Um, and through the movement, you see him go from essentially like somebody who was, you know, just pelting eggs to someone who learns to, you know, make a Molotov cocktail to someone who eventually flees Hong Kong by boat to Taiwan um, because he, you know, fears a very lengthy imprisonment there and then eventually gets asylum in the US. Um, so his life has obviously been completely altered by, by this movement. Um, Finn Lau was in London when the protests broke out. Uh, he was one of the online activists who, who really um, sort of drove the movement um, behind the scenes. So drove it through uh, online forums, uh, uh, telegram groups, and these were very, very influential. And we really wanted him to kind of speak to that 
idea, right, that like online activism was really pushing so much of what we saw on the ground, even pushing so much of what we saw ending up in Washington and London with the imposition of sanctions. A lot of that came from from very like motivated activists who are operating behind, you know, anonymity. Um, and then lastly, Gwyneth Hall, um, as I mentioned before, she's one of the 47 um, who are on trial for subversion, but she started off all this as a journalist um, and covered it from the perspective of a journalist. And then through that um, sort of gets caught up in some of the movement's biggest moments uh, and then chooses to kind of use that energy and and, and run for office and, and kind of um, make something more of that ends up in jail. We really wanted to use this idea of exile versus jail um, and the two parts there. You mentioned, Shivani, the uh, need for anonymity, and I, I was struck in a note uh, early in the book, you, you say that everyone who helped you, down to the fact checkers, uh, requested complete anonymity. Uh, that, that suggests the degree of danger that people feel uh, in being seen to be participating in anything that supports a democratic idea. Just give us a, a sense of what uh, Hong Kongers who helped you uh, feel uh, about the, the situation they're living in. Right. Yeah, I think, David, that's a, such a good point, because, you know, essentially what we're seeing now in Hong Kong is that the red lines are so unclear. They just keep moving. They're, you know, amorphous and they're, they're just not even formed yet. Right. As, as, as we noted in the beginning, this trial where people were arrested in the beginning of 2021 is still you know, dragging out today. We're in December almost of 2023. So I think people just don't know what to expect from this law. They don't know what to expect from this new Hong Kong. Just yesterday, somebody was arrested in the airport for sedition for wearing a t-shirt. Um, you know, so that's that's really the level kind of we're talking about here. And because of that fear, the fear of the unknown, the fear like of a Facebook post or a tweet or something else getting you jailed. I mean, I think people are just erring on the side of caution, right? And so much of the government's focus has been rewriting history, rewriting the narrative. And, you know, because of that, I think, you know, any any sort of book, any sort of kind of version that seeks to like establish this is really what happened. Um, you know, I don't know if there's an inherent risk in that too. Well, I'm just curious what the, the dangerous t-shirt said, you know? <laughs> Um, I think it said that there was an allusion to, you know, revolution and independence um, within within the T-shirt. But, you know, it was a T-shirt at the end of the day, right? Um, and there was a description of police rushing to the airport to apprehend him. It was kind of absurd. Um, so, uh, Timothy and, and Shabani, both tell our viewers what it was like to cover this movement, um, to get to know some of its leaders had to do it in a way that was safe for you. There was a lot of tear gas and, and potential danger in the streets for journalists, certainly a lot of danger for the people you were talking to who risked um, a lot to tell you their stories. Just give us a sense of what it was like to cover it. Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, by the first few weeks, it was a bit of, I know this sounds strange, but there was kind of like a rhythm or a routine uh, to things. The biggest protest kind of um, generally happened on on Sunday. Um, some other protests would happen on, on Saturday. Um, you know, during the week, there would maybe be small events or smaller protests at different places. Um, but, but Sunday was really kind of like the big day of the week where we would go out and we would be, you know, uh, following the rallies or the marches and then you know later on in, when the police tactics got really aggressive and then the protesters kind of uh, responded to that by getting more radical uh, in their own actions um you know we would be out there when that was when that was happening as well 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was uh, toward, you know, towards the end, I think it, it did become a, a, a bit more challenging, um, you know, trying to, to be out there. There was a lot of tear gas, rubber bullets, kind of predicting where the police were going to be or where you'd be going. I think one of the biggest challenges was that the movement was really huge and really diffuse and kind of leaderless. So on a, any given day, there could be events happening all across um, Hong Kong. Uh, so, you know, there was only two of us uh, often kind of working together. So picking spots, uh, you know, trying to predict where to be at the right time, um, you know, we couldn't be everywhere um, all the time. So I think that was kind of one of the one of the harder things was just kind of mobility and getting around the city and trying to get to all the places where things were happening. Um, and then maybe, I guess maybe Shivani has her own reflections on it, although we were together for, for quite a bit of it. Yeah, in terms of, you know, um, also just like keeping people safe, I think one of the biggest things about the Hong Kong movement was that so many people we were speaking to were anonymous. Um, one of the really interesting things on in our book tour was uh, having people come up to us and say, actually, you interviewed me in 2019, but you don't know uh, because we were anonymous, right? You know, that that, that was that was definitely a, a, a sort of challenge to kind of surmount, right? Especially, you know, when you're writing for the Washington Post, like there is an expectation, right, that sometimes you should have named sources and, and they should be able to like tell you about their lives and their details and I think that was that was really challenging and you understood why right because there was such a fear of China's reach um, even you know when people had left right even when when these uh, protesters and activists have left to the UK or the US I mean there's still so much of a fear of China's like long arm and transnational repression and, and what that could all mean for them um, and I think you know ultimately that's kind of why most of our book focuses on, on exiles rather than people still in Hong Kong um, because of the inherent risk there that um, is obviously to a certain degree lessened right if, if people are outside. So Shibai and, and Timothy, my own recollection of that uh, period uh, is from a, a brief visit in September 2019, uh, watching the protesters uh, gather on Hennessy Road and the inevitable escalating confrontation. And I remember saying to a group of the protesters that I had a nagging fear that they were repeating something I'd seen covering the Arab Spring and the Arab world, but I have to say other democracy uh, movements that are leaderless and you know gloriously idealistic, but ha come to unhappy ends. A and I, I remember saying to these um, young democracy protesters, um, don't make the mistake of missing your chance to get the best deal that you can, um, because that's what happened in the Arab Spring, and everything was lost. The movement was crushed and destroyed. Do you think that uh, has any any validity that the movement, um, because it lacked leaders, just wasn't in a position to make good tactical decisions, and in effect just kind of went over a cliff? Um, well, I can I can start, and then I think yeah. Tim also has thoughts on this. But basically, you know, I think when when the protest movement kind of started like getting you know sort of more like radical, right? I think there was a certain degree of fatalism within it, baked within within it as well. Like, I'm not sure people were necessarily looking for a deal by sort of September October because so much violence had happened. They felt so sort of brutalized by. The police, the faith in institutions have totally collapsed. I think, you know, there was this idea that, like, if Hong Kong is going to fall, if we're all going to, you know, be here suffering, we should make the city as a whole suffer, right? A lot of it had 
the focus that sort of changed what they were looking for was sanctions and international response. What they were looking for really was to change Hong Kong's international relations and international dynamics forever. And in a way, they kind of did pull that off. Um, you know, four years ago um, this month, um, you know, the then President Trump passed um, the Hong Kong Human Rights and, and Democracy Act, right? And that set the pathway up for sanctions against key leaders, including, you know, Carrie Lam, the current CE, John Executive, uh, John, Chief Executive John Lee is sanctioned. Um, you know, I think that's kind of what so many people wanted to see because they kind of felt like we're going to be like our future is hopeless anyway. We're all going to end up in jail anyway for doing this. We're all like putting our lives at risk. Um, but still, I don't think people saw the extent of, of what was coming from Beijing. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think you know, um, to, to to your broader point, you know, we did when we, when we went into this book. I think you know we wanted to to keep you know looking at it as journalists and not as you know advocates and keep reporting on it. And I think you know we did went you know we tried to point out. Uh, you know, in the book, some of the, you know, the other move, moments of the movement and, and, and some of the tactical, you know, mistakes that the protesters certainly made. I think, um, you know, barricading themselves into to Poly, uh, Poly U, uh, Polytechnic University uh, in, in November turned into the, a, a really, you know, a huge blunder on, on their part. There was a huge amount of violence, um, a huge amount of arrests, injuries, uh, you know, people in really, really dangerous situations. Um, you know, that was uh, something that I think really, um, you know, looking back was was not a smart I idea. Um, you know, there was also, um, you know, some attacks on, on mainlanders or people perceived to be from, from the mainland. Um, so certainly, you know, I think we try to address those moments, you know, in the book as well um, and not look at this thing, you know, totally kind of idealistically. So in the few minutes that we, we have left, just a couple. I want to ask each of you uh, briefly to stand back and uh, explain for our viewers what you see as the, the lessons of this story that you covered um, in terms of Taiwan, in terms of the Chinese people's obvious desire for, for more freedom, more democracy. What, what lessons do you draw? Shabani, uh, you, you first. Sure. I mean, I think the my main takeaway is how sort of fragile institutions are. I don't think anyone could have expected the speed and intensity of what would happen in Hong Kong. You know, like sitting in sitting in courts and sort of watching these essentially show trials today against people like Jimmy Lai, against the group of 47. Um, I don't think anyone could have predicted that that would happen quite in the way in, in sort of the sweeping nature it has, right? And, you know, for so long, if Hong Kong people trusted anything, it would be that their common law courts, it would be that their institutions like that, would, would protect them. It would it would it would you know shield them right from whatever might come from from Beijing. And and I think uh, you know we've learned that yeah it's very fragile and these things can change and and, and sort of disappear very quickly um, in such a short span of time. And and uh, Timothy, uh, be specific about the lesson for Taiwan, which obviously is very much in our mind. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you know a few things come out of uh, out of this, this situation in Hong Kong that reverberate, you know, in Taiwan. The first being that uh, you know Tsai Wen uh, was elected president there, um, you know, using uh, a lot of what had happened in Hong Kong, you know, as part of her campaign, as part of her rhetoric, um, you know, and, and and through that, I think we saw that you know one country, two systems is not a acceptable. Um, you know, way of governance for the people of Taiwan. I don't think in the in the near term or in the medium term or maybe even in the in the in the long term they would be willing to accept that type of uh, that type of setup. Which, as Shabani mentioned, you know, at the beginning was was the original vision, uh, you know, of one country, two systems when Deng, you know, dreamed it up. 
Um, so, you know, I think those are, are, are certainly two things um, that come across. And then I think also, you know, in our reporting, we found, um, you know, a lot of the rhetorical support um, that came from Hong Kong, from lawmakers, um, from, from the Trump and then also the Biden administration. Um, you know, there was also a lot of disappointment uh, amongst people in Hong Kong, um, you know, that immigration pathways weren't opened up for them to come to the United States. Um, you know, that the United States had been such a vocal backer, some Republican lawmakers in particular even came to Hong Kong, um, you know, that then they would be sort of, I think, you know, felt like they were kind of forgotten about or used for domestic political gains within the United States. Uh, and I certainly think that there is a reason to kind of interrogate the reason behind and the sort of validity of, of the people that are now, you know, uh, throwing themselves into the Hong Kong, or sorry, into the Taiwan cause uh, in, in the way that they are U.S. lawmakers, kind of in particular. So last uh, quick question, uh, and then we got to wrap it up. Uh, Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen said Wednesday that she thinks a Chinese invasion of Taiwan is not likely for the immediate future. Do you think she's right? Probably. Um, probably. I just don't see the incentive to 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 sort of do it in that way. And I think, you know, many people have predicted it would never be a full blown sort of invasion, maybe blockade as a as a step towards that. Right. I mean, I think that the sort of paradigm of using kind of even Ukraine, right, would, is pretty flawed when when sort of applying it to to Taiwan. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, I, mean, wanna, I would that... go ahead, Timothy. No, no, I'm saying I would I would agree with, with, with what Shivani said. So. So I want to thank you both. Uh, it's a wonderful book, a powerful story, uh, an upsetting story to see the, the freedom of these Hong Kongers, Hong Kong citizens uh, crushed in the way that it was. I want to thank you both for, for joining us and uh, thank everybody for, for, for tuning in. We have lots more great Washington Post live programming. Please go look for it, register for the programs that interest you, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.